Oh, what is the crack, you erstwhile guffs? Take off your galoshes. Rest your oxters on the banister. Would you like me to prepare you some bovril? Are you not itchy from wearing so much tweed? Welcome to the Blind by Podcast, you prick. Um, <clears throat> it's fucking podcast number 40, I think, is it? <sighs> Unless I'm egregiously wrong. I believe it is podcast number 40. Because I spoiled you rotten last week. And I put out two podcasts. You had your regular Wednesday morning podcast. And you also had a live podcast on Saturday. Um, which got some lovely feedback. I was glad to have the live podcast back actually. Like not, not to put it out there on... Um, the Wednesday but to have it as a separate thing because it's a different mode and my guests were fucking unreal it was like I, I again it was it was a live podcast where when I was doing it I would have loved to have been in the audience just listening you know so go back and listen to those two if you didn't get a chance this is the third week where I'm complaining about the fucking heat it's still unbelievably hot we're in the grips of a a very intense heat wave and I don't think I've ever seen the likes of it in Ireland I've never seen three solid weeks of fucking pure blasting heat we've been in the high 20s Limerick was 31, 32 there last week we've been about 28 this week and it has to be fucking global warming because I've seen shit I've never seen before like there's one or two trees that look like it's fucking autumn. Do you know? Like I looked I looked at looked at a tree there last week and its leaves were gone all rusty. And in my head I was thinking, Oh fuck, summer's over. And I was like, No, leaves don't fall off till like October, you stupid prick. So this fucking tree is behaving as if it's October because it's burnt out of it. It has no water, no fucking rain, and it hasn't had nothing but heat. So a tree is dying, and the tree must be 30 years old. So this is the first time in that tree's 30-year-old life where it has experienced that intensity of heat. So I think we're all gagging for a bit of rain. Just the familiarity of it, do you know? I've forgotten what it's like. Not too much rain, even though we know well that's what we're getting. We're getting a month of rain, guaranteed. And it'll be cold. So I'm going to start off this week by telling you a little story. Um, It's half inspired by something I've seen online this week. It was something I saw online in the news that reminded me of this story, which I've never told you. I thought I had, but I haven't. So, it was about... Three years ago, four years ago, in Limerick, right? And I was writing, which TV series was it? It wasn't the 1916 documentary. It would have been the Rubber Bandits Guides for RTE. Those four documentaries about reality, sex, the internet and money that I made for RTE. 
I was writing them. So it would have been around August, September 2015, we'll say. 2014, I don't know. But anyway, um, how I write TV shows is I usually work with... Uh, there's a pal of mine called James Cotter. And James Cotter is fucking years and years in comedy, in, in writing television comedy. He technically kind of discovered us for RTE. He produced Republic of Telly, um, which is where we got our TV debut. And when we went up to RTE, we'd already been making noise on the internet, but when we went to RTE, our audition was for, for this fella, James Cotter. We did a ridiculous fucking audition. Um, I don't even remember what it was, but... James saw it and said this is nuts I want to put it on television so he gave us our break but James is who I write with whenever I write television he'd be like my my writing partner de facto do you know what I mean most of the stuff I've done on RTE anyway and we're also working on something at the moment for a British television thing which I've teased you about but I haven't told you but anyway my writing process for television is as such my col- my collaborative writing process when I collaborate with somebody usually uh, rent out like a fucking a suite in a hotel like a business suite where you've got a desk and a whiteboard and all that shit so myself and my writing partner would go in there write 9 to 5 then having written 9 to 5 with some ideas we'll go for pints because it's a two pronged process I always encourage uh, merriment. Merriment needs to be uh, a necessary part of the creative process because if you spend the day writing in a structured fashion, you know, writing a piece of television, then in the evenings it pays off to go for a few pints because you're relaxed then. You're relaxed, you're unwinding, you're not in work mode, but your brain is still thinking creatively. And when you go for the pints afterwards, problems, uh, creative problems that happen in the morning will resolve themselves in the evening. So that's my writing process. Uh, Even to the point that I'll I'll write it into fucking contracts. Like if I get a a gig with BBC or Channel 4 or fucking MTV or whoever, I write into the contract. My writing process involves pints. So anyway, we were out in Limerick having a few pints after a hard day of writing and we were inside in um, a place called Nancy's in Limerick which is a lovely an outdoor bar type of area would have been midweek but a Wednesday was the only place that was happening on a Wednesday so I was in there having crack and got to about 10 o'clock at night and I noticed Jesus there's a lot of yanks here there was about 20 Americans having crack in Nancy's in the courtyard at about 10pm on a Wednesday. So I had a few pints in me and I was like, fuck it, I'll, in- I'll introduce myself because I was curious. I was like, why are there so many Yanks out on a Wednesday night in Limerick? This is odd. Now this was, like I said, 2015-2014, the height of the fucking recession in Limerick. Limerick, at the height of the recession, was a very, very bleak place. Okay? Nothing was open. Nobody was out. Nobody had any money. Very bleak. So I walked up to one of the Americans at the bar. And just chatting. 
how are you getting on? Oh, you're from Virginia. All oh, right, what's the crack? And then someone else was from California and all of this, and I got chatting, blah, 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 usual stuff. Being uh, nice. So I says to the Yanks, what the fuck are you doing here? And then one of them says, we all work for a massive uh, American um, company. They wouldn't tell me what it was, something to do with tech. We work for a massive American company and we're scouting several locations in Ireland for us to open a massive factory. So immediately I was thinking, fucking hell, Limerick. Limerick's fucked. Like one of the reasons Limerick was fucked too, a big reason is that we relied upon um, a company called Dell who make computers. Dell were employing half of Limerick at one point. So when the arse fell out of that industry and Dell left Limerick, it really destroyed the city. So many people were left out of jobs and also the fucking industries that relied upon that employment. So in my head, I was like, there's a lot of Yanks in Limerick and they're obviously you know, trying to pick a place to put this new business that could reinvigorate the city, could provide thousands of jobs. And obviously they're looking at Galway, they're looking at Dublin, they're looking at Cork. So in my head, I start thinking, Okay, if I show these people a good time, then in their heads, they will associate Limerick with the place where they had the crack. Now, I know what you're thinking. Like, that's, blind boy, that's a bit of a fucking long shot, is it not? And it is, but I was thinking branding. Do you know? Like, you know, if something as superficial as going to a city having a good night out that can leave an emotional taste in somebody's mouth that could sway their opinion towards Limerick City and that's how branding works that's how that's how advertising works you know we're not fully rational human beings superficial things and emotional connectivity will influence human human beings do you know um storytelling you know, I wanted them to come away from Limerick with a good story, a good narrative. We went to Limerick, we met a mad cunt, he was sound, we had unreal crack. That's the taste I wanted to leave in their mouths. So I went up to the fucking bar and bought him a round of drinks. Alright, that's the first thing I did. I bought the cunts a round of drinks and I said, welcome to Limerick. And there they are now with their free drinks. They're obliged to come over and stick with me for a bit. I'm going to fill your belly up with fun, Yank. And rub your belly with the pleasure glove. I'll satiate your pangs for mirth, Yank. That type of stuff. So, got them the drinks. As soon as I got them the drinks then, they had to come over chatting because I just bought them pints. So we ended up chatting and having crack. And Now, I gave them, I gave them the full, full shebang, entertainment mode. Do you know, I, I engaged them on everything from... Limerick's history and culture fucking told them about King John King John's castle I told them about medicinal cannabis comes from Limerick I, I betrayed myself I paddy whacked you know for some of the, the southern gentlemen I told the southerners about how in in the civil war how the confederate uniforms were made in Limerick city which is a fact it's not something we should be proud of they were the bad side and then we kept going with the drinking. And I bought him a few more rounds. Before we know it anyway. It's myself. 
my buddy James was writing with me and about ten Yanks wandering around the city looking for a fucking nightclub. So we eventually end up in uh, Icon and we're going at it. We're going at it till about three in the fucking morning and I'm I'm really happy with myself. I'm thrilled. I'm going, I'm after being a good ambassador to these Yanks I'm definitely after showing them a good time. I'm after showing them hospitality, uh, you know, bottom drinks. I personally feel that they're going to walk away from this night going, Limerick was lovely, Limerick was class. I think this is where we need to invest. You know, I'd given them their emotional narrative that might possibly sway their opinion. And it didn't matter that I'm after spending 150 quid on drink for the cunts. Didn't matter because I was doing it for Limerick. Do you know, what's 150 quid to me? If it means an industry happening in the city. So then after I went for the last round of drinks. Now I'd bought them I'd say maybe four or five rounds of drinks at this stage. One of the girls comes over to me. And she pulls me away from the rest of the group. And she says look there's something I need to fucking tell you. Because I feel kind of bad all night. And I'm like what what's the crack. And she goes please don't tell any any of the rest of the group that I said this to you now. Please. And she was really fucking, she frightened. So I said, what? What is it? What is it? And she goes, you need to stop buying us drinks. We know what you're at. I'm like, what? You're trying to influence us to invest in this city. And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm trying to show you a good time, you know. And then she goes, we're not from a company and we're not investing in the city. We're soldiers. We're in the US Army. And we've been lying to you all night. That lad over there, who was telling you about the investment, he's my lieutenant. That fella there, he's the sergeant. I'm a private. We are all US soldiers. And we were on a stopover in Shannon Airport. We're heading to Iraq tomorrow. But we had 24 hours and we didn't want to spend all that time in the airport. So we snuck out of the airport, put on regular clothes, and we are not supposed to be in Limerick City right now. We're really not supposed to be here, so I can't tell you. So we had to come up with this story about investing in the place. And I'm sorry that you bought all those fucking drinks. So I felt like a fucking prick. These covert snakes. Do you know? The thing is, with uh, Shannon Airport, since the war on terror began, loads and loads of US warplanes have been going to Shannon Airport near Limerick in Clare. And stopping over to refuel or whatever before they go to Afghanistan and Iraq and that's what these cunts were and they were illegally technically an invasion you know technically soldiers on Irish soil because when they go to Shannon airport there's parts of Shannon that are technically US soil but you're not allowed outside of that with proper clearance and here they were invading Ireland well invading my fucking pocket in Limerick Getting free points off me. And I felt like a goal. And it really, it, it left a bad taste in my mouth about the US Army. Amongst other things that they do also. But especially that. Yeah, so that got my goat. The reason it came into my head is I seen a story on the internet during the week. Well, I seen a picture going around of US soldiers in Shannon Town. In full fucking military uniform at a petrol station. Uh, buying sandwiches which again they're not supposed to be doing and it caused a bit of a scandal and that reminded me of that fucking story which I'd forgotten about
It's a weird history. It's a weird history there of the US using Shannon Airport because Ireland is a neutral country. Do you know, we're a neutral country. I mean, a lot of people are like, the main worry was if you allow the US Army to refuel their planes or do whatever in Ireland, you make yourself a target for ISIS or Al-Qaeda because ISIS really don't have that much of a gripe with Ireland. Well, they do because we're the West, but we're not very high up on their list, you know. I mean, Bin Laden even wrote a letter saying that the Irish might be worth considering converting for Islam because of our history of uh, religious fundamentalism and terrorism. But yeah, a lot of dodgy shit going on there that we don't know about. Um, Accusations of... We don't really know what's on the US planes. What's been agreed is that soldiers are are allowed to refuel in Ireland before they go... Refuel in Shannon Airport before they go over to Afghanistan or Iraq. Weapons are not allowed to be brought through Ireland, but we don't know whether the weapons are on the plane. And controversially, a lot of people believe that CIA extra rendition flights were brought through the country. And that's basically grabbing people out of Afghanistan with no evidence and taking them straight over to Guantanamo Bay and interning them without trial. And that these people may have been brought through Shannon which is a violation of our fucking neutrality, you know. In 2003, a group, um, they attacked the US warplane with a hammer in Shannon Airport, which was quite gas. And it, it was a Catholic group, actually. Um, they're like, I don't fully know what the crack was, but there's this group of Catholics that now I'm no fan of Catholicism but there's one particular group of Catholics that on the surface they seem kind of okay now um, someone might tell me there's something horrible about them but this group that attacked the US warplane they're this weird brand of Catholicism where they actually look at Christ's life and go we need to do what Christ would do and Christ essentially was a socialist you know he was about redistributing wealth and was kind of a nice guy and this group of Catholics are like well if Christ was around today what would he be doing well he wouldn't be sitting in the Vatican uh, you know fucking accruing wealth what he'd be doing is he'd be trying to stop wars so they battered the shit out of US warplanes with hammers because that's what they believe Christ would actually be doing today which I think is kind of gas I think they might be liberation theologists have you ever heard of that liberation liberation theology is um it's a brand of Catholicism that's popular in South America where it's Catholicism that intersects with communism and socialism. But, uh, yeah, Shannon Airport is weird. It's quite an important... Uh, it's historically a very important airport. Duty-free was invented in Shannon Airport. The first ever duty-free was in Shannon Airport. And most importantly, for the bulk of the 20th century, Shannon was the actual corridor to the United States if a plane came from America and wanted to go to Europe or wherever else it had to stop in Shannon Airport I don't know why exactly but it wasn't allowed to stop in Dublin or Cork if you came from the US and you were going to London or Germany the plane had to stop in Shannon simple as that also technology as well I don't think planes were able to fly from America to Germany but you had to stop in Shannon that was it up until about the 80s anyway and my dad 
used to work in Shannon Airport. He was involved in unions there. He was a union man. And he was big into fucking making sure workers had proper unions and all of this shit. But anyway, when he was working in Shannon Airport, there was a VIP room. And he, first off, this VIP room, like I said, if, if, if Shannon is the corridor for America for most of the 20th century, anyone of any fucking importance, if they were going to America or coming from America, they were in this Shannon fucking VIP room. I'm talking the Pope, Bob Dylan, Mother Teresa, fucking Michael Jackson, Muhammad Ali, Frank Sinatra, Che Guevara, the mad Russian cunts, Boris fucking Yeltsin. Actually, Boris Yeltsin got drunk in Shannon and couldn't leave the plane and it caused an international incident. Nikolai Khrushchev, Lenin, like, seriously, anyone of any importance for the bulk of the 20th century, if they travelled from the America to Europe, they were in Shannon Airport VIP room. As a given, right? So, in this VIP room, they had a lovely carpet, obviously, right? Because it's a fucking VIP room, so you're going to have the best carpet in the world. So there was this green wooden carpet, mad fucking expensive shit, that had been there from, we'll say, the 40s up until the mid-80s. So they decided to change the carpet. And my dad, who worked in Shannon, saw that, like, how long they're getting rid of this fucking beautiful carpet. I wonder what they're going to do with it. So he asked whoever was getting rid of the carpet. He said, what are you doing with that carpet? And they're like, well, we're just throwing it away. So my dad says, do you mind if I take the fucking carpet? Because in fairness, it's a class carpet and I'm not going to be able to afford one of them. So he took the carpet before it went in the, in the, the fucking, uh, into the skip and had it cut so that it went into my living room at home. So I grew up and in my living room, and now I, all my friends used to think I was mad, and I used to get in trouble in school as well for saying it too, because they thought I was mad. But I used to say to people, the Pope has stood in my living room, Michael Jackson has stood in my living room, Bob Dylan has stood in my living room. Like, a fucking fact. I had a length of carpet that everyone of any importance in the 20th century had their fucking feet on. And I, as a child, would get down on my hands and knees, and I'd smell the carpet. And I would absorb. I used to love doing it actually. Because I'd be listening to like. You know my brothers would be listening to David Bowie. Or Bob Dylan. And I'd get down on my hands and knees. And I'd sniff the carpet. And I'd imagine sniffing the bottom of David Bowie's uh, feet. Or John Lennon's feet. Or Kate Bush's feet. Anyone. They were all on that p- fucking piece of carpet. And yeah of course everyone thought I was mad. School teachers wouldn't believe me. Do you know. The Pope has been on my carpet. Get out of the class, they'd say. Um, what's... The carpet's gone now. There's about a square of the carpet left, as far as I know, and it's in the boot of my ma's car. And it was used for many years for a Jack Russell to sit on when that Jack Russell was being transported. And, yeah, that gets me thinking. I must try and salvage that foot of, of famous carpet and donate it to a local museum. But my dad had a lot of stories out of Shannon Airport that I didn't know what to believe and what not to believe, you know, because he was a he he was a fan of a story being more entertaining than truthful. But there's one story he told me, 
and he ended up asking a historian about it and it turned out to be true and my dad claims he met Che Guevara in fucking Shannon Airport and that Che Guevara was on his way into Limerick City to covertly have a load of fucking pints right and apparently what happened is that like Che Guevara now he's the if you don't know who he is the Cuban revolutionary the legendary Cuban revolutionary his image is ubiquitous um, with communism you know that fucking black and white portrait of him which was actually created by a, an Irish man Jim Fitzpatrick and the reason that image of Che Guevara is so famous is that Jim Fitzpatrick when he created the image of Che Guevara was like well if I'm going to create this image of this socialist communist revolutionary I can't profit from it so he made the image open source meaning anyone could use it and reproduce it that's why that image is so ubiquitous Jim Fitzpatrick doesn't earn a penny from it so here's the story my dad told me Right, my dad would have just been a, a young fella working in Shannon at the time it was 1965 and <clears throat> Che Guevara was due to meet Khrushchev or one of those mad Russian cunts or whatever so yeah, 1965, Che Guevara, because he is travelling to Russia from Cuba, has to stop in Shannon Airport. That's a fact. So apparently the plane was like a shitty Cuban thing and it broke down. And they were on the runway for a day. So Che Guevara's like, well, I'm not fucking staying on this runway. Take me to the nearest fucking town and I go on the fucking lash, please. Okay. So his bodyguards were like, okay, let's make it happen. And apparently that's where my dad met him briefly for two seconds and shook his hand. So my dad was aware of who he was. Also, what you have to remember about Che Guevara is that he wanted to know about his Irish lineage. Che Guevara was descended from the Lynches. The Lynch family were a powerful kind of Galway family who fought Cromwell and lost so fucked off to Spain and then from Spain went to Argentina I believe so Che Guevara had an Irish great grandmother and he wanted to explore his Irish roots for the day that he was in Ireland so Che Guevara snuck out of the airport and went into Limerick and apparently went on the absolute rip and got lashed in I don't know the Glentworth Hotel Hanrity's Hotel it was Hanrity's Hotel in Limerick Che Guevara was in there in the 60s and crack was had and he was drinking and singing and having chats with a bunch of Limerick lads Che fucking Guevara my dad used to tell me that story and I thought he was spoofing and then I went looking for a fucking local historian it turns out it's true Che Guevara was actually in Limerick that is verified he went on the lash now one of the main reasons like I didn't believe my dad when he was telling me that is that that's not the only fucking Che Guevara story relating him to my family that my dad used to tell. It was the second Che Guevara story. So, forgive me for thinking it was spoofing, even though that one was proved right. The second Che Guevara story that I grew up with, I've mentioned before on this podcast, my uh, great-grandfather, or sorry, my grandfather, my dad's dad, and, I, and two or three of my granduncles were very active in the IRA in West Cork in the 1920s. They were members of Tom Barry's Flying Column. Um, one of them was a captain, I believe. And the story that I heard is Che Guevara, fucking revolutionary, 
leading a guerrilla war against the US was studying, studying revolutions. And Tom Barry's flying column in West Cork are considered, you know, they, they would be credited with not inventing guerrilla warfare, but very much fucking drawn the blueprints for guerrilla warfare. These were just farmers who took on the British army and fucking won using non-linear warfare, hiding in bushes, fucking hitting and running. And apparently, again, according to my dad, Che Guevara started a written correspondence with Tom Barry in West Cork, sending letters to Tom Barry going, how are you getting on, Mr. Barry? I'm trying to lead a revolution over here in fucking Bolivia and in Cuba, uh, trying to fight the Yanks and the Yankee puppet governments or whatever. Can you send someone over to train some of our lads or can you give me any tips in guerrilla warfare? And this correspondence was happening, apparently. But the hot take conspiracy that my dad used to say, and this is the bit that I think is bullshit, apparently uh, certain heads in West Cork reckoned that what Che Guevara really wanted was that he was aware that President Kennedy was visiting Ireland uh, in, in, in the 60s and that what Che Guevara really wanted was to develop a correspondence with old IRA members so that they would allow it so that Kennedy could be assassinated in Ireland. And I had a granduncle who was fairly high up in the guards. He'd gone from being in the IRA to joining the guards. And that was the the hot take conspiracy theory that Che Guevara was trying to get through to my granduncle. That's spoof. But I do believe that Che Guevara was in correspondence with Tom Barry. And apparently my granda was in possession of the letters so that's two Che Guevara stories that my dad used to tell me. One of them I can definitely confirm. This podcast was actually supposed to be about something. I had a whole thing planned out, but now... Stories my dad told me are flooding back. And they're too gassed to not tell you. Because um, he worked in the unions in Shannon for like fucking 40 years. What was the other one? Yeah... So this would have been about early 80s. And they'd just started using sniffer dogs in Shannon, right? The the police in Shannon had started using sniffer dogs to find drugs. And drugs, no, drugs and bombs. So there was one particular dog that was highly, highly successful in Shannon at finding drugs. And... The dealers who were operating in Ireland couldn't get drugs through Shannon because this dog was so good. So one day, the dog goes missing. Kidnapped. Now the fucking police are heartbroken. Police in Shannon Airport are heartbroken over this. Because they love the dogs, like. Do you know what I mean? They, they really, like, they have a proper relationship with them. But as well as that, if you harm a police dog the force comes down on you like it's you might as well be harming a guard it's taken very very seriously so this dog was missing for weeks and weeks and weeks and the police were heartbroken over it so one day the dog arrives back in the airport in a cage fine and healthy smiling wagging his tail thrilled not harmed at all missing for three weeks 
and beside the dog is a photograph and on this photograph it's a beach about five lads wearing balaclavas beside them is about six foot worth of drugs and beside that is the dog they'd kidnapped the fucking dog to find their own drugs that they'd lost on the beach and then once the dog had found the drugs for them they delivered him back safely to Shannon Airport there was another gas dog story he told me so when my dad moved from Cork up to Limerick in the early 60s um, if you were a young fella then accommodation was done in, in what was called Diggs's and Diggs is basically where you like I think it was usually like spinsters a spinster or a widow would have her house and she would let young lads she'd, she'd let them a room in the house room and board but you essentially just slept in the house and I think there might have been meals made for you but you like it wasn't your own place you were very much staying in a, some old woman's house so my dad stayed in one of these gaffs and he was in a room with about three or four other lads and it was one of those kind of small townhouses on a row so it's like kind of like a bungalow but there's an attic as well but the attic isn't up very high the attic is maybe 15 foot in the air so the woman who ran the house I think her name was Mrs Fanukin she had a little Jack Russell called Scott and Scott was called Scott because he was a prick he was one of these Jack Russells that was just incredibly vicious and snapping at people but barking non-stop do you know like when you walk past a small dog and they just bark at you for no reason Scott was one of these dogs so because my dad was working in the airport and he was a young lad and he was living with a bunch of other lads who worked in the airport they used to work strange hours you know night shifts so they might work all night and have to sleep during the daytime. So they'd all have to sleep upstairs in this small attic. And because it was the daytime, Scott would be up barking all day long. And they couldn't get a wink of sleep because Scott wouldn't shut the fuck up. So weeks and weeks went on. And the lads were getting no fucking sleep. At all. Until one day one of the lads in the room snaps he goes fucking nuts Scott was up in around the room when they are trying to sleep and barking and one of the lads snaps and he grabs the terrier and he opens the window of the attic and he throws the dog out the attic window now it was a fair enough fucking uh, kind of a, it, it was a bit it wasn't a huge drop it was like 15 feet obviously it's cruel to be throwing a fucking dog of any height but it wasn't enough height to actually hurt the dog but anyway so dog gets thrown out the window and he comes back in and he's absolutely fucking grand and my dad was worried because he's like for fuck's sake he can't throw the dog out the window you could he could have broken his legs or anything so a week later they're all up in the local pub they'd finished work so they go over and there's a crowd gathered uh around by the bar and there's one man in the centre and he's talking and he's got the ear of like a load of people whatever he's talking about it's incredibly interesting 
So my dad and his friends go over to go, what the fuck is this fella talking about? And as they get closer, they notice that this man, he's got a full cast on his arm. And he's telling everybody the story of the cast. And what he's saying is, I'm telling you lads, that, that dog Scott, that little Jack Russell that Miss Finucane has, stay the fuck away from him. He's very vicious. Last week, he jumped up in the air and broke my arm. So obviously your man had been going past the house and when your man fucked the dog out the window it landed on him and broke his arm but he didn't expect the dog to be coming from a window. He thought this little Jack Russell had come up jumped six foot into the fucking air and broken his arm and he was regaling the entire pub with this story. And the same <clears throat> the same fella then who'd thrown the dog out the window a few, le- a few years later well about a year later he eventually he met a girl and got engaged and got married right but they didn't have a fucking house so what happened was Scott died anyway because he was old and this lad who was staying in Mrs. Finucane's house the rest of the lads moved out and he moved his new wife in into the digs in Mrs. Finucane's house. So now up in the attic was just the lad who threw the dog out the window and his new wife staying in digs in a fucking spinster's house. But because Scott was gone, now he had to get an actual alarm clock because he needed this alarm clock to be getting up in the morning because there was he, had, he finally had peace and quiet. There was no dog barking. So he gets this alarm clock and... He's, you know, sleeping upstairs in a room with his fucking wife and they're newly married. So they're both bollocks naked in the nip all the time, riding obviously because they're just newly married. So he has an alarm clock to wake himself up to get up at three in the morning to go out to Shannon Airport. But because again, the alarm is going off at queer hours of the morning, it starts interrupting Mrs. fucking Fanukin. So she didn't give a shit when Scott the dog was waking the boys up in the middle of the day. But now when an alarm clock is going off with this lad and his wife upstairs, Mrs. Fanukin all of a sudden, her nose is out of joint. So she used to, when he'd go down, she would kill him and say, that fucking alarm clock that you have going off at two and three in the morning, I'm going to kick you out of the house because of it. You know, and they were only waiting to get their own place to move into. So what happens anyway, one morning, he's in bed with the wife, both of them in the nip, and the alarm clock goes off. So he reaches over immediately. And this is before fucking snooze alarms or anything like this. This is a fucking alarm clock, right? So old school alarm clocks. Very, very loud. But they're wind up. They're very mechanical. They have a lot of mechanisms in them. They're physical moving things. So the alarm goes off. Your man wakes up. He freaks out. And he goes, fuck. I can't wake up Mrs. Finucane with the alarm. So the second it goes off, he grabs it and shoves it in underneath the sheets, right? He's in the nip. Where does the alarm clock go? Goes down to his balls. The fucking turning mechanism on the back of the alarm clock starts to intertwine in his pubes and pulling at the pubes. So all of a sudden now he's got this violently vibrating, loud, screaming alarm clock stuck onto his testicles. So he starts roaring and screaming and running around the room. So Mrs. Fanukin gets up at two in the morning, 
runs upstairs to the attic. The wife is in the nip, screaming with a scissors in her hand, and your man is running around the room with an alarm clock where his genitals should be, screaming and roaring. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine an alarm clock winding your pubes tighter and tighter to absolute fucking agony? That actual story, I used that. That's a story my dad used to tell me when I was a young fella. And I used to fucking... That's one of the ones I used to keep asking. Please tell me that one again because it was so funny. I ended up using that story in the Channel 4 pilot that we got um, a couple of years ago. I have an episode, I think it's still on YouTube, called The Alarm Clock. And I took that story about someone in bed, an owl lad in bed, getting the alarm clock and putting it towards his balls to stop it in the morning. But where I took that story was, it was a character called Granda, it was Blind Boy's Granda, gets the alarm clock, puts it to his balls. Then what happens is that the alarm clock and the agony of it in his testicles it causes a rip in the fabric of time. So the granddad's sperm, because of this alarm clock, ends up going back in time and to impregnate his own mother. So it fucks with the fabric of time to the point that the granddad becomes both his father and his son. And it leaves him with a bizarre sense of uh, depression and longing for the childhood he never had because he's only after discovering that he's actually his own dad so how does it end he ends up embarking on a father son relationship with himself and breaks his back after he tries to sit on his own lap and that was yeah that was inspired by that that real story of the bollock alarm clock that happened in Mrs Fanukin's house which wouldn't have happened if Scott was still alive yeah so this podcast it was supposed to be able to fucking I had a psychological theory I wanted to discuss but it's just ended up me talking about gas stories that my dad used to tell me. How bad? But, uh... No, fuck it. My dad was great for that. He died when I was very young. He died when I was, uh... About 18 or 19. And... It would have been at the height of my anxiety. And looking back on it now... Like, obviously, it fucking broke my heart. Do you know what I mean? But... A lot of positivity came from my dad's death. And I don't mean that in a, in a disrespectful fashion. But, like, it's one of these things around... You know, I, I speak a lot about uh, with existence. Pain is an... A pain, disappointment, death. These are, these are inevitable facets of human existence, right? You cannot live life and avoid suffering. And when you deal with loss and suffering and bereavement correctly we'll say when you take meaning from it it can give your life great meaning and that's kind of what it did for me like I I tackled my anxiety and depression at 19 but my dad's death was definitely a catalyst to make it happen because a lot of my a lot of the causes of my anxiety were it was the fear of becoming an adult and that's very common that's like so many people mental health issues tend to present between the ages of about 16 and 20 that's quite quite a common age uh, for mental health issues to present themselves and a lot of that is because of the massive pressure and the confrontation of suddenly going from uh, 
being a child with parents that you look up to and having things done from you and uh, done for you and being in the school system and that regimental thing to suddenly go on, you're on your own now. You're a legal autonomous adult and it's an existential crisis. You're overwhelmed with the freedom. That's what Niche would say, do you know what I mean? I mean, this is where concepts like God become very convenient because as humans, we, you know, we're raised by a parent figure up until a certain age. And I think the the part of our brain that needs God is when you get to an age where your parents are no longer there, this overlooking, caring concept of a godlike figure replaces the part of the parent in your brain, if you get me. Do you know? It's like you don't all of a sudden go to nothingness. It's like parents are gone. They're no longer looking over me. Great. God's looking over me now. Do you know? I think that's what... That's one of the things that the concept of a God does that's of benefit to the human psyche. But I don't really have that. I don't have that... The gift of believing in a God. But also the psychologist... Is it fucking Ericsson? I think it's Ericsson. Stages of development. Ericsson's theory states that at different points in our life, we have various stages that we must conquer. And between the ages of, uh, I think, 12 and about 18, the that stage, according to Ericsson, is known as identity versus role confusion. It's where... To successfully conquer that stage, all humans must develop a true sense of self and identity and to st- understand who you are. Some people, they don't understand who they are by the time they get to 18. I would have been one of these people. I would have been quite emotionally immature. And this led to, it would have been one of the reasons behind my mental health issues with anxiety and depression. And you're then thrust into fucking adulthood it's now you're out of school you're now an adult on your own you got to earn your own money you got to stand on your own two fucking feet and that's terrifying for a lot of people and it can result in mental health issues it did for me but when my dad died that was like as traumatic as it was it was like a sledgehammer that forced me into the next stage of development I had no choice then but to truly become an autonomous adult because with my when my dad went the money went as well do you know what I mean like I like I, I couldn't become a fucking 18 19 year old who stayed at home I had to actually now go oh shit now I actually have to sort my shit out learn how to earn my own money and look after myself but yeah, from that bereavement, I get great meaning from it, you know. And one thing as well with bereavement, because, again, I'm not a fucking... Like, you, like, I don't believe in afterlife. I'm not particularly spiritual. I don't believe that there's a part of me that's able to speak to my dad. I believe he's truly gone. But you can find a certain degree of meaning in death even if you're not spiritual and it's through what's known as as rippling. And rippling is where... Like, my my dad, even though he's dead, he lives on in my ability to tell stories. 
Like my dad was a was a raconteur. You know, if if my dad told a story, he was able to make it interesting. Do you know the the things that I kind of the reason you listen to this podcast really? I mean, people say to me, "Why do I think my podcast is successful?" I mean, a lot of the shit that I say, there's nothing particularly novel about it. You could read about it on the internet, but what I do try and bring to everything I speak about is a sense of story to hook you in, you know what I mean? Set up conflict resolution. If you speak about any subject and there's a sense of story about it, it automatically becomes engaging. And I learned that from my dad. So even though he's dead... A part of him through rippling, it flows through me in my ability to tell stories and communicate. And I then get great solace and meaning from that. Do you know what I mean? And maybe it's something to take on board. If any of ye, if most of ye, I'd wager that fucking 60% of ye have, are currently either going through a bereavement or have gone through one. Like suffering is unavoidable loss is unavoidable people you love are going to fucking die and it's going to be painful but there's great meaning in that pain and there's no proper way to do bereavement you know like the bereavement process is it's it's as unique as the relationship you have you had with the person you're bereaving is that a word bereaving it's as unique as the relationship you had with the bereaved there's no proper way to do it. But a healthy way to go about bereavement is to search for fucking meaning within it. And if you're fortunate enough to be fucking spiritual and you're one of these people that truly believes you can speak to the bereaved person beyond the fucking grave and that works for you, work away. Absolutely. Absolutely. But for someone like myself, I can't go there. But there is evidence in rippling. Like, that's that's a fact. I grew up listening to my dad telling fucking class stories and being a good storyteller. And he had a great appreciation of literature and writing and a huge, a great command of the English language. And I took all these things from him. And they are, that's rippling through me today in what I do. And I get great meaning from that and great solace and comfort from it, even though he's gone. Do you know what I'm saying? The only thing that does disappoint me and break my heart is like he was hugely he would have been very encouraging of me with my creativity when I was young do you know at a very young age if I I would have received a lot of positive encouragement from him if I showed signs of being a storyteller or being creative or being knowledgeable the things that make my personality today that I do for a fucking living are no surprise the things that I received a hell of a lot of encouragement from him from and I covered that and how that happens in a previous podcast around the theories of Carl Rogers and conditional positive regard conditional positive self-regard but what does disappoint me is he didn't get to see the only aspect of, we'll say, the rubber bandit stuff, I started doing rubber bandits when I was 15 with prank phone calls. That's all he got to see. And he was kind of proud of me 
but not really as well because I, I, I was failing school pretty badly, you know. When I should have been engaging in fifth year and sixth year because I fucking hated school, I failed my leaving cert. When I should have been engaging in these things, I was with Mr. Chrome recording prank phone calls, having crack, doing that type of stuff. And my dad loved the prank phone calls. He fucking loved them. Um, he would kind of tongue-in-cheek like him because he knew it was I should be engaging in school, but he was dead proud of him. But he never got to hear, like, he never got to hear. Like, my favourite prank phone call is the bank. I made that after he died, you know. He never got to hear. He had no idea that I was going to be a songwriter. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I started producing music and writing the Rubber Bandit songs after he died. He had no idea I was going to get a name for myself as an artist. Do you know, all of these things. That's what's very tough for me because he was very proud of me and my creativity when I was a kid and he can't see these things now. I mean, fucking hell. Like, I'd give anything for him to be able to read my book. Like, he himself, he wanted to be a fucking writer. And he never did it. And, you know, I had a great-grandfather who was a fucking writer. Never got published, but that rippled all the way down to me. And I fucking actually got published. Who the fuck do you think showed me Flannor Blind? Do you know? And instilled in me a love of the written word and a love of writing. Only him. So, that's quite tough for me, you know? So, a big battle for me in the early days. And this is, when I speak about that. The importance of having an, an internal locus of evaluation when it comes to your art. Around the time of Horse Outside, when I was a bit younger and making waves for myself, there was a big pain in my tummy where I just really wanted approval. I wanted to show my dad the thing that I'd done. I wanted to show him and go, look, I'm on the paper. Look, I'm on the television. Look, my fucking... The music I'm making. Look how many people are following me on fucking MySpace or whatever. I wanted deep in my heart to be able to show him and I couldn't because he was dead. And that was tough because what do you do with that, you know? And all I could do with it was to tell myself, do you know what, to be honest as well, as a mature adult artist, it is it is not healthy to be searching for parental approval. Once you become a fucking adult searching for parental approval for anything you do is it comes from an insecure place it comes from a childish place do you know it's okay there's nothing wrong with your parents thinking you're good but if you seek parental approval in anything you do you're not being true to yourself as an adult so that's kind of how I overcame that and worked towards what I call the internal locus of evaluation when I create anything the only that thing that matters and what I'd strive for, my approval of it, that's it. If other people like or dislike it, that's great. But ultimately, I must have an internal locus of evaluation for my creative work. And not only for my creative work, for myself. I can't be going back to my dad or my ma and looking for approval. It's not healthy. <coughs> Fucking hell. <clears throat> I wasn't expecting that podcast. That's pure and utter flow now. Um, I started off with the fucking story about in Nancy's meeting the US soldiers and it just spiralled from there. I allowed my unconscious mind to make the connections and I'm happy with that now. 
Um, what'll we do? We do a fucking ocarina pause. Yeah, <clears throat> the podcast there on fucking Sunday's live one. The British Army are still advertising on this podcast. Well, I don't know if they'll do it this week. I, they definitely did it last week. So I listed out all the British Army's war crimes. But I'm going to do the Ocarina Pause now, which is a weekly digital angelus that we do on this podcast because the app Acast inserts um, an advert for a product halfway through the podcast or near the end. So I'm going to play my Ocarina, which is a Spanish clay whistle. And this ocarina is going to replace the advert. But it depends. You might hear an advert, you might not. But if you're lucky, you're going to hear the beautiful dulcet tones of this clay Spanish ocarina. (laughs) Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Yuffie X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris and MopMaster dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. That was the ocarina pause. Hopefully you were not recruited to the British Army. Don't join them. Um, also, if you enjoy this podcast, there's a few things you can do. If it's your first podcast, go back to the start, number one. Secondly, you can leave a review of the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast. You can rate the podcast. All these positive things you can do, which I would invite you and ask you to do. Also... This podcast is supported by you, the listener. There's occasional sponsorships, but I prefer it when it's actually just fucking funded by you, the listener, through the Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and the other ones, and you would be like, do you know what? I like that. I'd give blind by a pint a month or a cup of coffee a month. Please do that. Give me the equivalent of a cup of coffee or a pint once a month on Patreon. And in exchange, I'll give you five hours a month of podcasting. And if you don't want to, that's fine. Don't have to. You can continue to listen for free. It's a a model based on kindness and soundness and it's working out okay. Some people like to give me Patreon money. Other people are like, I'll leave it a while or I can't afford it. And that's grand. So patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. Please contribute to the Patreon. Um, because it, it, it also, it's what keeps the podcast regular. I don't think, if I was earning not enough to podcast, I'd still be doing it, but I wouldn't be doing it every week. Do you know, I can treat it like a job now. Because I'm like, fucking hell, this is actually, this is paying some bills. This is helping me, I'm earning a living off this fucking thing. Brilliant. So I treat it like a job every fucking Wednesday and the occasional live podcast the odd weekend Um, when's my next live podcast it's in Dublin 
It's on the 29th of July in the Ivy Gardens. And I'm looking forward to this one. I'm interviewing this comedian called Neil Hamburger, who's an American legendary comedian whose act is basically like a hack Las Vegas comedian who tells bad jokes. That's his act. But I'm going to be interviewing him out of character. I'm looking forward to that. So I think, is that sold out? Might be one or two tickets left. And if there isn't, they'll release a few at the end. So have a look for that. I'll answer a few questions from you delicious cunts. Derek asks, do you do anything to manage your tinnitus? I was diagnosed with it last year. I still use earbuds for listening to music podcasts. Do you avoid headphones? Um, yeah, I've got fucking tinnitus. It's a cunt. I have it basically because of gigging. 10 years of gigging and not wearing any earplugs. So if you're in a young if you're a young person in a band, please start wearing earplugs, any earplugs you can get. Also, if you work in a bar, if you work in a nightclub, start wearing fucking earplugs. I'm not joking. Okay? You don't want tinnitus. Uh I have a continual high pitch ringing in my ear and it is never going to go away. That's it for the rest of my life. It's like being short-sighted in my ears but there's no glasses for it there's no cure so I just live with it that's what I do um, there's occasional things I'll do I'll tell you one thing my tinnitus tends to get worse if I'm if my mental health isn't top-notch because I focus on it more but to be honest the tinnitus is always there but I just it may as well not be because I don't think about it. I just get on with my day and I don't think about it. There are some things you can do to reduce the tinnitus. Find out what frequency it's in. You know, if it's high-pitched, something like the sound of running water will cancel it out or the sound of white noise will cancel it out. But that's only a temporary bandage and when you stop listening to to the thing that cancels it out, it just comes back louder. Um, I avoid the shitty thing is I don't make as much music as I used to make like if I'm producing music to make a song you're talking fucking 8-9 hours in front of the computer making a beat nice and loud all day I can't do that anymore I have to maybe 2 hours max and keep an eye on the volume or else my tinnitus is going to be incredibly loud for the rest of the day Um. You can put your hands on the back of your neck. You can interloop your hands on the back of your neck and tap the back of your skull. And that will turn it down temporarily for a few seconds. But again, just accept the fact that you have tinnitus. Accept that there's nothing you can do about it. And just be thankful that it's like there's worse things you could have. I mean, all tinnitus is is the illusion of a sound in your head. There's nothing harmful about it. Um, there's no health effects I mean there's people out here who fucking lose limbs or have chronic illnesses tinnitus is nothing so just be thankful that that's the only thing that's wrong with you that's what I do and I don't think about it I get on it my day and I do keep an eye on certain things that are gonna totally exacerbate it such as making a rave tune for 8 hours I can't do that anymore Niamh asks have you any hot takes on chemtrail conspiracy? I've heard for years that they're poisoning our skies to try and control us. My rational head just takes it as conspiracy theory bullshit, 
but especially now with the beautiful clear skies we are enjoying, I'm seeing some mad pics online. What is really going on? There's no such thing as chemtrails. Chemtrails is bullshit. If you don't know what chemtrails are, it is a conspiracy theory that the jet streams that are left by airplanes are actually them the government or whoever the Illuminati spraying mind controlled chemicals it's harsh shit scientific evidence refutes it completely just like the most simplest one get friendly with anyone who's an air, aircraft mechanic I know too like often you see online as well they'd use as evidence they'll have a photograph of the inside of a 747 with a bunch of what looks like um the seats are taken out and it's all these huge canisters full of gas. That's like a training airplane. They're ballasts. There's no such thing as chemtrails. It's... The, here's the thing with conspiracy theories. A conspiracy theory, it's a modern... It's modern mythology. It's modern fairy tales, you know? It's, it's the most interesting version of a story. It's so interesting we want to believe it. Wouldn't that be great? The government are flying planes around the place and spraying us with chemicals. They're not. Like, that's... It's just... It's not happening. Drew says, We were out drinking cocktails in Sydney and I had a flashback of the almost impossible game show. I completely forgot about this gas cuntism from yourself. Don't think you've mentioned this, this part of your career on the podcast. Can you fill us in on the details of how it all came about and possibly give some of the listeners who haven't heard it a taste of the hilarious commentary? Um, yeah, the, it, it, the Almost Impossible Game Show, it was a TV series we had on ITV in the UK with two series of it. And it, sh- it, it's, it was made by Endemol, who are this massive fucking company, and... It was this really shit game show, right? And, like, they had this kind of idea for a really shit game show where, like, it's almost impossible. Think of, like, do you know Wipeout? Have you ever seen Wipeout? It's really, like, it's really bad. And they came to us with this really bad TV idea. And, but the money for it was good. So I kind of sold out and said, yeah, fuck it, I'll take it. But, however, here's the thing. I figured... Even within this format that's really not cool, it's a bunch of English people in leotards falling around in mud. I figure the people who were running the show were really intelligent, sound, funny people. They gave me complete creative control in how I did the voiceover on this TV show, how myself and Chrome did it. Complete creative control, and they defended us to the last. So what we ended up with is, first of all, the name. That was a little joke. It's called The Almost Impossible Game Show. And it's on British television, ITV. The Almost Impossible Game Show abbreviates to TIGS, which is a derogatory com- a derogatory name for Irish Catholics, which we are. Because I was like, I want to have a fucking TV show in Britain called TIGS. And when you turn it on, it's a pair of TIGS laughing at English people falling over. But... Yeah, fuck it. I loved it. Two seasons of it. I fucking loved it. They would send me over an hour of footage over to Limerick every week. And it was just this huge, like an abandoned RAF airfield. And all these English people doing these impossible games where they fall into mud and whatever. And basically, giving carte blanche to write whatever I want over it. 
so ridiculous, surreal commentary. Um, what I always tried to do was drop in like really smart references and shit to have it like to really confuse the viewer. It's like you're watching it and someone's falling over and all of a sudden I'm dropping in a reference to fucking Niche or James Joyce or something like that. So the people at home are going, what the fuck is this? This is on ITV too. This is a channel for thick cunts. Do you know? And it was great crack. I fucking love doing it. And we did it for two seasons. And then what happened? It it actually it, it did very well actually. The fucking, the ratings of it were class. But... America came over, right? America, MTV... USA said we like this show we want to make it for America so I then went and made two seasons of the Almost Impossible Game Show for MTV USA we had an MTV fucking USA show in 2016 now that was so surreal I I just fucking went and did it but the problem was as soon as MTV got a hold of it I was no longer working with the really cool funny creative production team who let me say whatever the fuck I want so I ended up making two seasons of an awful, like, the show's already awful, right? It's basic chewing gum entertainment. But what made it good was I could juxtapose the shitness of it with some funny stuff and it ended up making it good, you know? And the Americans didn't get that. So when I would try and have a joke that's subversive or risky they would just shoot it down. I wasn't allowed to make any references that were pre-2010. Do you know? So the American version is one of the worst things I've ever made in my entire life. And thank fuck, it was so bad. Well, there's two reasons. It was so bad, it went out for one one episode in America. Two seasons had been made now. Went out for one episode, they cancelled it immediately. It was so bad. The other thing too... I snuck in a lot of fucking Irish curses like Gowl and someone flagged it and the Yanks weren't happy with that but I did get paid for the American season even though it didn't go on air so I don't give a fuck but only recently yeah I asked Endemol who made the Almost Impossible Game show I said uh, can you send me over a few episodes and they are they're going to send me over a few episodes of it and I'll see about I'll stream them online or something I'll stream them onto our Facebook and won't upload them but I'll let you know. I fucking loved it. It was so much crack. And we would so much fun doing it. Um, I heard a rumour. That they're going to try and. Pitch the two seasons that were already made. They're going to knock on Netflix's door. And see what they think of it. But don't hold your breath. You know what I mean. I would fucking kill. To do more seasons of the Almost Impossible Game Show. Or any other TV show. With that team. That I was working with. Where they basically gave full creative freedom to say whatever we want and to completely defend us to the channel. That's the recipe for success. Um, it was so much crack. So much fucking crack. T- TV's fucking weird, do you know? Um, it's one of the most fickle industries going and just because something... Shit doesn't get commissioned because it's good, do you know? It, it can be very arbitrary why things do and don't get commissioned and... A, a real skill you have to learn when you're making television is to truly you have to learn the skill of like everything starts with a pilot now impossible yeah there was a pilot for impossible game show you have to learn the skill of making a pilot giving it your all 
but at the same time treating it as if it is going to get rejected because 9 out of 10 times it will and that's a tough skill to develop our Channel 4 programme um, which was the first proper TV commission I'd been given, you know, and it was fucking Channel 4. Like, I gave that my heart and soul, but I truly, I believed it was going to get commissioned, and it didn't, and that was very tough on me. Now, a few years down the line, I should not have given a fuck about that at all. Shit gets commissioned, shit doesn't get commissioned. Sometimes I get pilots, sometimes they never see the light of day. I just have to work on it, but... I've a, I'm... I'm making a pilot at the moment and I can't tell you what it is yet I'll be announcing very soon and I swear to fuck I'm not even I, I am I've made that pilot and my attitude it is it is not going to make it to series that's my actual attitude and that's the healthiest attitude to have because then there's no disappointment and I can do that while still working on the pilot and making a good piece of work do you know what I mean it's mad. That's the skill you have to learn with television. Um, Alright, so, go fuck yourselves. God bless. I'll see you next week. And hopefully next week the podcast will be about something. The last few podcasts... I think I blew my load with the post-disco one. Two podcasts that are truly about something. This week was just a bit of a... A free-form ramble. But I enjoyed it. Go in peace. Have some compassion for yourselves. Compassion for other people. And hopefully we'll see a bit of rain. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.